Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. And speaking of, here's Hunt. Hi, how's it going? Good. Hi, Hunt. It's pretty pretty. We need to uh, get going, I guess. We're going to spend as little time as we can on the three exhibits. Oil pricing, gas pricing, and cash flow statement for the U.S. government. In the oil price at any particular time, there is a risk premium. And the risk premium, if there was no geopolitical things going on like the war in Ukraine or, or the Hamas attack on October 7th, the risk premium would be low. And obviously, sanctioning Russian oil, possibility of having you know, a wider war in the Middle East involving Iran increase the risk premium. I would say in the last week or two, due to the skill and political leadership and military leadership, it looks like the risk premium in oil of, of the Israeli defense forces, the risk premium is coming down. And in fact, the price of oil is down. The tricky thing in Exhibit C is that 4 million barrels and 24 of, of uh, surplus capacity it's being held off the market by uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, Abu Dhabi. And uh, now the demand is pretty good. I mean, the demand in 23, 101.2, and up one and a half, 1.6 million barrels. Actually, the OPEC energy economists just said they expect 24 to go up two and a half million barrels a day. So despite all the publicity about China, demand's pretty good, but you do have that extra supply to cope with. And as I say, to the extent the Israelis are quicker and more effective in rooting out Hamas and Gaza, uh, you can expect the risk premium to go down. Exhibit B, when you see it next week, can't very well say that dry gas production in estimated 24 is going to be 102 and a half if it's running 104 now, which is what Platt says. So you're going to have to redo these numbers. On the demand side, I think the power demand, which has been up two Bs a day in 22 and two Bs a day in 23, and is only in these numbers goes up half a B a day in 24 and 25. I think that will offset it a bit. LNG, maybe that'll go up a little. But this trend of, you know, a surplus of 3.4, which is very high, going down to only 400 million, hopefully will be maintained. And so that the forward strip of 280 this year, $6 last year, which had all to do with Russian gas not reaching Europe, high LNG demand, a big risk premium, like maybe the risk premium at gas last year was $2. So it was $6 rather than $4. That's gone because Europe was able to get through the winter. And Europe has all their gas storage filled. So actually, LNG is kind of weak now. But so 
rather than six dollars, you take out the risk premium because you know you don't have a land war in Europe that often. Let's say twenty-two would have been four dollars up from three seventy prior year, and then down to two eighty, say in twenty-three. Hopefully, this decline in in surplus or storage change will permit the futures curve to happen, which is you know three fifty and twenty-four and four dollars and twenty-five. I'm very proud of. Uh, I'm proud of all these numbers, but I'm very proud of uh, Exhibit A. Because it's playing being played out in front of us. First of all, got to get some new numbers from the uh, CBO because this 23, this forecast was made. Look at look at the date on this. It's February 27th. This is more than six months old. But the deficit projected at that time at 1.4 trillion dollars came in 1.7. So got to revise these numbers. But the main point that I mention every Wednesday is that the spending away from the things that are kind of automatic and away from interest and away from defense was 910 billion in 2019 and this year was projected to be a trillion four it was probably more it was probably a trillion five so that just can't continue to happen our government doesn't have enough revenue and something has to now the House Republicans with their new leader has gotten a continuing resolution passed so that the 12 expenditure bills can continue to be worked on. What the Democrats would do if they could is do a continuing resolution and not worry about doing the 12 bills. But now it now it's been extended to middle of January and then early in February, so it'll continue to be in the news. Hopefully, the two parties, the middle of the two parties, can make progress on doing those expenditure bills. Um, with that, I'm just going to stand down and see if Mike or Jason have anything more to add from a, from a macro point of view. I guess I would, I would say the deficit was $1.7 but depending on how you do the accounting, it, it could you could call it $2 trillion. That's true. Definitely That's has true. to... Definitely has to come down. Yeah. We've been trying to cover all 20 pages, and we never got to page 20. Just like to make a point about these 20 pages, I think there must be 80 companies. I think we average four companies, maybe, maybe four and a half companies per page. There are only two companies that don't have free cash flow, and maybe three if you include DoorDash. One of them is Nextera, and Nextera is... is is you know coming the air is coming out of the next era valuation quickly one of them is intel of course we've talked about intel mike and jason have said that you know there's not much hope for intel they're just too far behind but these companies which i don't really know that much about uber or doordash uber looks like a more solid company because it has free cash flow Air, airbnb seems to be doing pretty good from a free cash flow point of view, but you get the sense that the Airbnb business is becoming more challenging. Buy Below is something that I bought personally quite a few years ago because I was looking for a follow-on to Fastenal, which everyone, a lot of money. And I would say the air is coming out of Five Below. I mean, I still own it, but uh, the good news is it doesn't have any debt. 
and uh, it does have free cash flow, and it is expanding out of free cash flow. But as they get more stores, it just doesn't look as attractive or as healthy as it used to. Uh, Mike or Jason, anything else on page 20? Yeah, I well, the, all these companies have reported, and while the numbers aren't updated on the sheet, I did a, some quick calculations to see kind of what's changed. And in DoorDash's case, they're, they're pretty much running cash flow break even, and that's not giving them the ad back for share-based compensation, which is important. It has been pretty significant dilution in the past. So it seems like they're shrinking the size of their operations, focusing on being more profitable. That all seems relatively good. Both Uber and Airbnb on a run rate basis are looking better from a cash flow and profitability perspective. Uber in particular is now 3.5% free cash flow yield on a run rate basis. Airbnb, if you go trailing 12 months, it's 4.6%. So that's all looking pretty healthy. I've never really loved the marketplace model business, and maybe I'll just be proven wrong that it is actually a really good model. It's taken a while to get here, and all these companies have spent a lot of money building their positions. Interestingly, if you think about Uber and, and wage inflation, Uber's fees are based on a share of revenue. So in a way, it's a very nice inflation hedge against service labor costs. So it's kind of, kind of an interesting way to think about that one. And then Airbnb, I think it's maybe the cheapest one on the sheet because it's sort of a regulatory arbitrage play in that they're basically taking residential homes and converting them into hotels at some point, and this is happening in New York City, it's happening in California, local governments are going to get upset about this and crack down on some of the rules. We haven't seen them enforced very well here in San Diego, but my understanding is New York City, uh, it's, it's working. And the, the rationale behind it is if you crack down on the Airbnbs by setting up a limited number of permits or something like that, you will offset some of the housing shortage situation that, that these cities have. So it seems like Airbnb's business is so big and so pervasive and people like it that even if some of these major cities enact these rules, it won't really matter for the business. In a way, you can think about it as diversified regulatory arbitrage. It sounds like you're going to have trouble talking your partner, Jason, into uh, thinking seriously about it as an investment, though. Any of these three. Any of these three, I don't. I don't sense that this is something that that Jason's liable to warm up to. Or what do you think, Jason? Uh, of those three, I think Uber is the most interesting for some of the reasons Mike brought up. It's it's you're pegging it to inflation of labor costs, so that's less of a risk there. And they're doing a lot of interesting things. DoorDash, to me, their prime time to get the company in profitable shape was through the pandemic and, and they, they didn't when we compare it to like some of those healthcare companies and they, they were just generating tons of cash through the pandemic. DoorDash could have had that when everyone had to essentially get the food delivered to their door, but they didn't do that. I guess the, the one we didn't touch on is five below. Like you mentioned, they're actually expanding their store count and they're forecasting sales to increase this quarter. They haven't reported yet 
but a couple other retailers in Home Depot and Target reported this week, and they both saw sales declining. And, and in fact, Target was closing stores. So, you know, a little bit of contrast there. And if you were going to pick between the two, but and the two being Airbnb and Five Below, you know, how do you think about those and the and kind of looking forward to how they're going to perform? Yeah, I mean, Airbnb has the regulatory risk, and I, and I have my opinion there because in Southern California, the, a lot of our neighborhoods turned into short-term housing, hoteling situations, and it had a big impact on the community because the tourists were not in, you know, essentially the tourist areas. Five below, I'm kind of undecided. So if the, the economy is weakening and if we go into recession, as we see, as you go down, lower down the, the income ladder, you're seeing people feel more pain in the economy right now. That hurts five below. But on the flip side is if the economy is slowing, do, do they pull in some uh, customers that were formerly you know, shopping at Target and as Target sees their sales decline? So yeah, maybe right now five below is in- more interesting. I'd yeah. agree with that. I kind of agree with Jason. I think Five Below was a better investment early in its career. I probably need to, I fall in love with these things. I, I probably need to find something better to own and swap Five Below into something else, but it's very difficult for me to do. Let's go to page five, where I have a long-term investment in Comcast. And once again, I, I, it looks very flat to me. Charter is like Comcast, only it has the same size cable business without the content. And same way, I've, I've updated these for the nine-month reports to 930. Uh, they're not expensive. They're, you know, probably 10% free cash yields. But, and, and they can make their way in the world buying in stock. And, and Charter has quite a lot of debt. So I'm not saying they're bad companies. I'm not... I'm not saying that if I had to if I had to own Comcast or Disney, it seems to me Comcast is much less risky because they have that cable cash flow, which is broken out. I mean, if their free cash flow of $24 billion, $20 billion is cable. If I had to own Comcast or Charter, I think Comcast is better because it has a content. Charter, Charter is, it seems to me a little more exposed. For the people on the phone, Comcast and Charter, you know, used to provide ESPN and cable bundles and whatnot. That business has basically gone away. What they are is your connection to the Internet. And where, they're, where they have a risk is if we turn over the page six, uh, two of the companies here, Verizon and T-Mobile, are very active doing uh, fixed-based wireless. I think they spent a lot of money and, and bought a lot of spectrum and whatnot. And they thought 5G was going to be the demand for 5G. And, and demand for 5G is weak, so they have capacity. So they offer, uh, you know, rather than being hooked up uh, by copper or fiber or something, uh, you can uh, you can get the uh, same service over the air. And, and with that as an introduction, back over to Mike and Jason, because now, now, now they know so much more about this uh, than I do. I, I've... Uh, I'm just going to stay quiet for the next three or four minutes or so. Well, the fixed-based wireless is certainly, um, I think it caught the industry by surprise in a lot of ways. One, what you've already explained, that that there was excess capacity and 
T-Mobile, Verizon, AT&T, they've all gone down this path of providing fixed wireless to customers. And, and you know, what happens there is if you pick off a small chunk, then, um, you know, it just, it dings the traditional cable company's profits. And from the, the, so T-Mobile, Verizon, and uh, AT&T's perspective, it's just marginal revenue where their operating costs stay the same. So it's hard to compete with a, with a player like that. So I, I think they're pretty disadvantaged from that perspective. I don't think it's going to solve everybody's problems, at least connectivity issues yet. And then if you start thinking about satellite-based uh, LEO constellations, the cost for that's starting to get down to a competitive range. I mean, Starlink to your house is currently about $100 a month, maybe 120 So that's within range of a cable-based internet connection in most places. Especially if you're in a rural location where you can't, it's cost prohibitive to run the cable or the fiber to your house. And Absolutely. Yeah. Your, your options are the fixed wireless or, or satellite-based. Mm-hmm. So uh, how, how does this play out long-term for cable providers? I, I mean, I don't really know. I mean, I think at some point you just don't have to invest much of anything and you'll be able to cash flow them dramatically. The real question is what do you do with that cash flow? Do you, if you're a cable provider, if you're Comcast, do you more aggressively pr- pursue wireless? They, they, both Comcast and Charter have, they offer wireless plans through MVNO agreement, which enable them to ride on the traditional carriers' networks like Verizon or AT&T or T-Mobile. And it ends up being a very profitable business for them because most of their customers utilize the internet at home. I think I saw a statistic, something like 60 or 80% of all data transfer on a mobile handset is done at home. So if you can basically remove the most expensive part of the cost structure, then you know you end up with a pretty decent business. So I, I think that all this means is there's, there's a lot of competition in, in the world of connectivity. And it doesn't seem like we have too much of a shortage as far as bandwidth and capacity goes. Yeah, that's a fair summary, I think. We're down to about 10 minutes left. The other page I updated was, I just covered quickly, was J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and uh, Morgan Stanley. And those three companies are, are doing fine. Uh, J.P. Morgan's doing a little better. Uh, this is page 13. Betsy and I are longtime holders of Goldman Sachs. We think it has an unusual franchise, and, and we own it for, I mean, I guess we bought it originally at $90 a share or something when the book value was 120 It's still trading at a discount from book value. Definitely has some kind of issues. They, they tried to do a bunch of businesses that were retail-oriented. That didn't really, they're, they're moving out of those now. Morgan Stanley has done much better in dealing with you know businesses other than traditional investment banking and trading, and J.P. Morgan is you know our our largest and, and most successful large bank. Once again, it's a little bit like Comcast and Charter. You can buy them for ten percent free cash yields, but the businesses are pretty static. 
and they're solid performers and and they can remember a company at a 10 or 11 or 12 percent free cash flow can add to that return to try to get you to 15 percent which doubles your money every five years by buying in stock and and subject to regulatory review these three companies will be pretty active stock repurchasers as will comcast and charter i think one way to think about these companies and see how mike and jason i mean here are good franchises uh can buy in stock can maybe get you to a 15 percent return which doubles your money every five years but are you better off with Microsoft at like a 3% free cash yield? Because Microsoft being able to sell businesses and individuals, AI products, their, their co-pilot product will grow 12%. So that's a dilemma. Uh, you're, you're, uh, you want to take the lower free cash yield and the possibility of growing not your sales or your income, but your free cash flow and get to your 15% bogey that way. And with that, over to you, Jason. How do you strike that balance? I mean, I I think I think knowing Jason well and knowing Mike well, what they want to do is they want to find something that's a three or four percent cash yield where the cash flow will compound at twenty percent to not just get you to a fifteen percent return, but to try to, you know, rather than double your money in five years, triple your money in five years. Or am I am I am I overstating the case, Jason? No, that's that's right. Yeah, we we look for fifteen percent, but uh, you know, hope for more. I guess <laughs> um, Mike's done a, a lot of work recently on the valuation for Microsoft, so I think the answer might be a, um, a little different than you expect today. I don't know if you want to dis- discuss what you're oh, yeah. working on. Oh yeah, we've we've got we've got exactly uh, four and a half minutes left. So over to Microsoft. We'll we'll cover the other magnificent seven companies next week so microsoft we we obviously spend time with all the companies in our portfolio and i I was kind of reworking the numbers on microsoft and where where we expect things to go previously on calls we've talked about how they have the potential to add we think at least 30 billion dollars to free cash flow in relatively short order maybe two three years that would be a 50% increase in free cash flow, which would be astounding. Based on the where the stock is trading today, which is higher than it shows in this sheet, I think it's around 370. In order to break even, if you get to that 90 billion in free cash flow, in order to break even, the forward enterprise value times free cash flow would have to be about 30. So you're really banking on the multiple holding the line. And Microsoft's one of the best franchises in the history of business. So maybe that's a good bet, but you need to go into these with eyes wide open. Would you expect that Goldman Sachs is going to grow at a higher rate than Microsoft over that period? Absolutely not. But if they can buy in shares, approximately 10% of the shares every year, based on how they're doing today, if they spend all their money on repurchases, and some of the other business lines come back, you could see a positive outcome. So I'm not going to say one or the other is a better investment. I think Microsoft's well-positioned, and it's a fantastic company, and it's in our portfolio. But I do, I, I, I wouldn't sell your Goldman Sachs either. No, no, no. I, I understand that. I, and I think that the component of value 
if you have 10 or 11% free cash flow and all you need is 4% growth to get to your 15%, you, you don't have the same risk of a compression in your valuation that you would have with a Microsoft. And if you're confident that that, that free cash flow capability can be maintained, there's less risk there. But my, my point is that you and, you and Jason and myself, I don't mean to single you guys out, want to have something like half our investments with the capability to triple in five years rather than double in five years. And to do that, you're probably going to have to take a lower free cash yield and more reliance on growth and free cash flow. And because of AI, because it's just such a strong franchise, Microsoft is very large, but, you know, may have the capability to, you know, to turn in that kind of a five-year performance. What do you think, Jason? I agree. Yeah. And, and besides the prospects of growth that they have through the AI products, it's going to make their operations much more efficient. We're seeing it, you know, I guess Twitter is a good example. Both Meta and Amazon are showing initial products that use AI to generate advertisements. So if the cost of generating these advertisements comes way down, they're still going to generate the same revenue from showing the ad to the customer's eyeballs. But if they're nearly free to generate custom ads, that will bring the cost down as well. So making these, these businesses much more efficient as well through the AI products. Yeah, and I know we're almost out of time here, but we should mention the fact that we talked about the rumors that Microsoft was going to develop their own AI chips custom to the OpenAI ChatGPT models. There's some public information about that now. There's an article on The Verge that came out today that has some good detail on that. So good follow-on reading for you. Yeah. The other thing that you know, Mike and I talk for about 20 minutes every morning and then he and Jason talk all day, but I mean, you have to be impressed with NVIDIA, as, as, as Mike and Jason predicted. It's so hard for Intel or AMD or anyone to catch up, and maybe for Microsoft to catch up with their own proprietary chips, because NVIDIA moves so quickly. I mean, they've now, they've now announced their next version of their high-end GPU, and if you're trying to keep up with them, either with your own proprietary chips or if you're AMD or Intel or, or, or you know, Chinese counterpart or Japanese company, or it's just very hard to do. I was asking Mike earlier. I mean, and, and well, ask, ask Jason. Then we can close on this. If there was a cadre of people at Nvidia that were getting this done, and let's say that the, the cadre would include software people as well as chip designers. I mean, are we talking? two dozen really smart people or four dozen or Jason, what would your guess be? I mean, what, what enables Judson Hying as, you know, the founder and the CEO, what enables them to move at this pace? How, how many, how many, how many people is he reliant on to keep this pace up, which is, you know, makes it impossible for anyone to keep, you know, to, to match. I mean, I think they're relying on, on a, on a lot of really smart people that work there. And Jensen's probably just a, an extremely ef effective motivator of the workforce and get, getting people to believe in the mission and, and work extremely hard 
to, to get you there. I think that I, th I think his ability as a motivator is probably the, the bigger thing. You look at like Steve Jobs was the same way. Maybe Pat Gelsinger. Maybe Gelsinger a, ni at maybe Intel. a nicer uh, Steve Jobs. <laughs> yeah, probably. You know, maybe Pat Gelsinger at Intel is is that he certainly says the right things. We're still kind of like waiting and see, wait to see if if he's effective in that. But there's there's got to be a huge team backing him. It's not it's not just a dozen people. Um, there might be a dozen really great managers there that Jensen's hired that also have that ability, but. Oh yeah, a lot of their executive team has been there for a long time. Yeah. So um, that's another sign of good leadership of that company. Mm -hmm. Okie doke. Well, with that, we're, we're a little bit over. Everyone stay well and be healthy. And we'll concentrate more on the uh, end of the 20 pagers next week. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the host nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.